So today is our mission's emphasis. And uh, behind me, you can see we have nine pieces of artwork. If you want to include the blank space, that's uh, 11. Um, but nine pieces of artwork from Eric Samuel Tim that we're making available for auction on our Soul Conference website. So just go into soulconference.ca and it'll bring you up. And in the menu, you'll see a... Um, uh, on the menu bar it says uh, auction. You click on the auction and each one of the paintings are highlighted on the auction and the minimum bid is $25 and so we ask that the first bid comes in at 25 and you can go up in increments from there. All the proceeds <clears throat> to these paintings with Eric's permission are going to what you're going to hear about in just a few moments called the Tractor Fund. But uh, we're not only talking about a tractor fund today, we're talking about clothing pastors. And our guest comes originally to us from the Sudan. He's a friend of mine, a gentleman that I had the privilege to work with at Calvary Temple. We worked across the hallway. I still, to this day, do not know how he survived um, with my noise and my music and everything else that was going on, but he did. And he's a dear friend, and he has came... Uh, to Seoul when we were still at 1111 Chevrolet. I would say that was about eight years ago, if I remember correctly, and shared his story. And James Ocott uh, has a story of faith and persecution. And I think sometimes here in the Western world, we, you know, we see this stuff on the news and it's easy for us to change the channel. And I think we need to be reminded of what's going on. And I've had invited James to come back and to share with us again his story, what's happening now in the Sudan, and what he and others are doing. And uh, it's with great honor that I want to welcome James back here on the stage, and will you make him feel warm and welcome. James, come on up. Last time he was here and he began to talk, my friend, welcome. Thank you. Have a seat, sit down, relax, put your books on there, your Bible. Last time you were here and you, you really uh, spoke to somebody's heart, Greg and uh, Loris Enns, and they came up to us afterwards because you were looking to raise funds for a tractor and you were almost there. And uh, they got it upon their heart to actually go to different farmers throughout the community of southern Manitoba and up to this point they have raised at least $16,000. Yeah, by themselves. And you now have a part to, to move on in that. So James, welcome back. Thank you. Um, for those who have maybe not heard your story, why don't you just uh, bring us up to speed. Okay. I just wanted to let you know your music and noise was nothing <laughs> compared to the artilleries and the bombs that I went through in the southern Sudan. Well, my story is a story of pain, suffering, but yet a story of glorious reunion with my family. I was born in southern Sudan, and uh, at the age of seven, I guess we have to leave southern Sudan to come to Uganda. So I have to live in, in a refugee camp for 17 years. Then I went back and uh, 
peace came that time, and I went to college, went back to minister to my own people. But when I went back, things didn't work very well as uh, uh, expected. War broke again because agreement has been broken uh, by the Khartoum government. They imposed Islamic Sharia law on us, and they said that every person have to speak in Arabic, and then go to school writing Arabic. And that does not go well with the people in the southern Sudan. And as the political leaders who plays the game, people began to rebel in the south and start to fight. That's the second war. And in it, that is where I got caught up between the hard rock. When two elephant fights, the grass suffer. But I was looked at as one of those people who are helping rebels. And um, I just wanted to mention briefly what I went through. I was working with Norwegian Church Aid, helping the poor people. This is not my first time trying to help people. And uh, the rebel came in that particular area, so we have to run away into the government control area. But the thing turned out that the government thought that I was trying to deliver this food to the rebels. And, and I, as a result, they tried to charge me. But the chief and all the other people explained to them that that was not the case. But I was list, listed in a black list, they call it. And my name was in a black book. So it didn't take long to, I was involved in the church for training pastors. And I sent some of these pastors to Kenya to be trained. But because they have not got all the necessary things, well, especially the plane is so small, could not take their family, the family were left behind. So the war intensified. And um, I was driven away from my own home. We were sleeping in the church compound. But then these ladies that the husband I've sent away comes to me and said, now you have sent our husbands away, now we're in trouble. Who is going to take care of me? Every day they were hunting me. And this is the, prop, the pain and the, the sorrow that the leader have. I have to bear all these things. And then I decided one time that I have to take them uh, to another city so that they can get a plane from there. I did. On my way back, I gone into an ambush of the rebel. I was almost shot with the RPG. My screen was shattered, but the Lord saved my life. The Lord saved my life. Eight years of torture. In, uh, in their camps <clears throat> outside the city. But God again intervened in a very miraculous way. One of my students from technical school was there. He's an officer. He came around and said, Wow, this is my pastor. This is my teacher. What are you doing here? I said, Well, I'm taken by your man. And he began to negotiate with the chief commander. And finally, I was released. But when I was released, I went to government control area where my wife and children were staying. Immediately, I was rearrested the second time in a day. <clears throat> so I was. So who arrested you the second? Now time? The, this is the government uh, soldiers from Khartoum. So you get arrested by the rebels and, and now by the soldiers. I have nowhere to win. <laughs> <laughs> so wherever I turn, it is a hard rock, and that's the. the I was terribly beaten for four hours in a small hut. My back was all running with the blood. My own shirt was sticking on my back. 
But again, God is so faithful. He brought another soldier who knew me, and he said, this man is not a rebel. Why are you killing him? They said, no, he's an informer. He went there. They left his car. They left him. Our vehicles have been burned. Why uh, is left? But then he said, well, you see his mouth and see the vehicle. The vehicle's shield was completely broken. But they, they could not listen. So finally, anyway, they reached a negotiation. They said, I have to be taken to the chief commander. And when I arrived there, the chief commander sent me to the chief security. And thank God, the chief security was one of the members of our church. So he released me. After releasing me... So, I so hold it. So every time hmm. you get arrested, somebody that you've had influence shows up. Yes, and that is very important. When we work with people, we have to treat people right. And when you treat people right, they also come and help you. So I was arrested, I mean, uh, released, but then these people were put in jail. Because it's a war situation, they cannot keep soldiers in jail, so they released them. And these people who were being released and then began to start to come and beat me all the time. We have to relocate from Torit to Juba, that is the capital city of the southern Sudan. We thought we were escaping the problem, but it is just another way of getting out of the frying pan into a fire. We got my, I got myself in a deep problem. Every day I'm hunted, sometimes taken in jail for, for five days, sometimes six weeks, sometimes a month, and this continues like that, and that frightened my wife so much because my wife, dad, was shot in the first civil war. He was the police commander and Grace was still in the womb. And growing up without a dad, growing with uncle, she became so scared, said, I want to go out from here with my children. I said, well, I don't feel that God is leading me to leave this flock that I'm shepherding. Okay, so you're being hunted, mm -hmm. and you felt that God, during this immense time of persecution, was telling you to stay. Yeah, I felt I should be staying. And indeed, it was nice that I stayed behind because there is a period which we call Black October. It was very, very bad. Many people are being killed and many people were dying of starvation. But I have connection in Germany and these men flew in food and we were able to provide food for many people who were surrounded, besieged in the city of Juba. There was no plane coming though that time except that plane that came from Germany. And um, we were not really eating food, we were drinking porridge. We make a small cup of porridge and we live with it for a day. You don't want to finish everything. And that has been a very difficult task for me because some people wanted to take everything but I have to supervise this thing. But things did not go very well. My friends, 25 of them were arrested taken to Khartoum. Before they actually arrived Khartoum, they were thrown out of the plane, they were killed. And um, then two weeks later on, they came to me, they said, uh, one of the people confessed that, you know, they get government information and they give it to me and I give it to the Western world because they hate people from the West. But I didn't do anything. I have no computer. 
have no camera, have no fax machine. I have no phone even. They have taken everything from me. I was living like in a stone age kind of a situation. But that is what they believe. And then eventually they brought another charges that I have bought vehicle taken to rebel control area and they're using those vehicles, the pickup to uh, raise <clears throat> their, their, their guns to mm -hmm. shoot the government. So this has been some of the things that they are accusing. But the basic thing is that they look at us as church leaders as a threat and um, they thought that we are stopping the advance of Islam. That is the whole thing because Sudan was, you know, ready to move and it is the gateway of spreading Islam to the rest of Africa. And anybody, any Christian leader who is seen to be powerful, they get hold of him. And uh, th that was the worst place that I, I got into and when they took me to Khartoum, they beat me and they put us into what they call White House. A White House is a house that has been painted actually white, but inside is so bloody. All people who they wanted to kill, they take them over there. And day and night, people being taken. Sometimes they take them, they tie a piece of metal on their neck because we are near the Nile. They throw you into the Nile. The crocodile then feeds on you. Or some people who have been taken, tied in the desert, left there to die of thirst. And people, sometimes they just kill you outright there. And time was almost coming for me to be killed. And again, God brought another two students. I taught several years ago. I never knew they were in security. They were asked to do the dirty job of the government. And therefore, when they, they came to me, said, well, this is the situation, but we don't know what to do. Do you have friends? Uh, I said, well, I have a friend, a Norwegian friend. And they said, okay, give us his name. I gave them the name. And they went there. They asked him to give them 2,800 Sudanese pounds. And they went and bought a ticket with one name. Because my name is in a blacklist. I cannot get a ticket to come out. But they never told me all these things that they were doing. So one night, they came over there. Then they started beating me up too. And I said, well, I thought you are my friend. <clears throat> what are you doing? So they were so angry and they started beating me up. They pulled me from there and dragged me out um, from the prison. And then they put me in the trunk of the car and closed me in the boot there. You know what I mean? Yep. I was yeah, you were in the trunk. It was not a fun place to this be. This is not a fun place to, to be. And then with the one... From your friends. From my friends. Yeah. <clears throat> so... They took me. When we drove outside the skirt of the city, they got me out and said, sorry, pastor, God has to forgive us and you have to forgive us. <clears throat> we did this to save our skin. You were supposed to be killed, but we have a ticket for you. We want you to go to Dar es Salaam. I said, Dar es Salaam? Why Dar es Salaam? In now, where is Dar es Salaam? That is in Tanzania. Okay. Dar es Salaam is in Tanzania. And I didn't want to go to Dar es Salaam. I have never been to Dar es Salaam. In my mind, my wife and children are in Nairobi. Now, we are talking of the spans of five years period. We are separated with my wife for five years. So I, I, 
I was tempted to come out in uh, Nairobi because the plane came first to Nairobi and then to Dar es Salaam. But they told me, don't ever get out of the plane in Nairobi. You have no passport, you have not enough money, so the security will get hold of you and transport you back. You will be deported and three of us are going to die. So it was a tough decision to make. It was so difficult. So I said, okay, I have to be patient. And this is where patience is very important. I stayed in the plane. And then the plane decided to get lifted and we were heading to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Besides me, again another miracle happened. I, I didn't know. I was sitting beside a wife of a diplomat. I was so much disturbed. I was wondering what is going to happen to my life when I arrive there. Are they going to take me and put me in jail because I don't have a passport? What is going to happen to me? I was just thinking about all these things. This lady noticed that I'm troubled. He said, sir, what is wrong with you? I said, you don't want to know about it. <laughs> <clears throat> and then when I said that, she became so interested again. He said, no, I want to know about this. What is happening? Then I told her the whole story. So she became so sympathetic and said, you know, sir, I'm the wife of a diplomat. I'm holding a diplomatic passport. So if you are not proud, when we arrive in Dar es Salaam, carry my bag and I'll get you through the gate. And from there, you will be able to go to UN the first thing so that you can get a letter of protection. Otherwise, you are going to be deported. I hate to see you in jail again. And again, to cut the story short, that is exactly what happened. And when we arrived there, I carried her bag and she went with the passport ahead. And they know her. She's a well-known person. They just tell me, said, what about this one? I said, oh, she is my worker. She works for me. I said, how did it get inside there? He said, that is not your business. Oh. He is, <clears throat> I needed somebody to carry these things. And then, of course, they didn't bow down because she's the wife of diplomat. We just walk without being checked. See the mighty things that God can do. Where there is no way, God makes a way. You know, many of you sometimes think that, you know what, I'm done. I'm finished. This is the end of the rope. It's not. I felt like that, but I found out when God is on your side, there is nothing impossible. So I came after we have put the bag in her car. said, now from here, I don't want to be implicated. The taxi is over there. She took some money, gave it to me. I said, go. I went to this taxi man. I said, I want to go to the city of Dar es Salaam. The man said, where in the city? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and truly, I don't know where to go in Dar es Salaam. I've never been there. But then I told him, don't take me to a very expensive hotel, neither a very low hotel, because I don't want it to be in trouble. The security people, I didn't tell you, mm -hmm. they gave me $200. To spend. To spend. So a plane ticket and $200. And $200. So, well, he came and uh, drove me to a hotel. And when I saw that hotel, I could read because some Arabic word, I've seen Allah Wakhbar. 
which means God is great. I said, I'm not, not going to give my money to these people so that they'll send it back to Sudan to kill my people. I said, sir, I need another hotel. He said, well, there is another hotel there, but there's no breakfast there. You only sleep. I said, I don't care. I'll find myself breakfast. And we went there. Another problem came. With $200, I cannot, you know, go and change it because I don't have passport. To change dollars, you have to have a passport. And I told this guy, I said, you know what? I'm so tired. Where is the bank? I want to change some money to pay this hotel. He said, well, I'll do it for you. Here's the car. If you think that I'm running away with your money, you know, have the car key here. So he went and brought this. When he brought the money, he told the people, this man is tired. Let him go and sleep immediately. He said, okay, you go. No registration, no nothing. <laughs> I just went, and they gave me the room, and I went there, I slept. And from there, you know, to cut the story short, I changed the money. I called Nairobi, because I thought my wife and children is still in Nairobi. We have sent a student to study, but could not go back to Sudan because of the civil war that was going on. So I knew his telephone number, I called there. When I called, and they said, where are you? I said, I'm in Dar es Salaam. He said, what is all this news going about? We heard in the BBC that you are killed. You are dead. We have the news. I said, well, I'm still breathing. I'm alive here in Dar es Salaam. <laughs> and I said, where is my wife and the children? He said, sir, sorry. Your wife is in Winnipeg in Canada. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Now, did, did, now, your wife's name is Grace. Yes. Did Grace hear that you were dead? Yes. Wow. So, the, actually, the Red Cross sent a letter to Winnipeg here to tell her that I was killed. And she then called Nairobi to find out. And that is where, you know, she was told that I am not dead, I'm still alive, and gave the hotel phone number where I was staying. And for the first time, we spoke in five years for two hours on a plane. Up to today, I tell people, I never ask her how he pays the bill. Uh, I'm happy to talk. We cried, we laughed, and the process began. And God did a great miracle in all these things. Um, I went the next day to find out where I can get a UN because I don't want to let everybody know that you know, I'm illegal because they can report me and then I'll be in trouble. So as I was walking, I found a church. I was tired. I walked. I could not find a UN office. I could not ask people. You know, I just wanted to find it by myself. Then I went to find a church. I found it open. I went there to pray. As I finished prayer, there was a pastor standing there. I said, sir, what can I do for you? I said, well, you can do nothing. I just wanted to pray. And... Um, I wanted to find a UN office. He said, why do you want to find UN office? Then he asked me in uh, Swahili. The Swahili I learned in Kenya is quite different from the Swahili in Tanzania. Tanzania have refined Swahili. And see, he immediately realized that I am not uh, from Tanzania and um, I'm a foreigner. So uh, your Swahili was... 
a little bit diluted one. Okay, diluted. All right. So you were kind of like a redneck, is what you were saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as you know, it's, then he said, uh, "Why are you looking for you?" And uh, I could not hide and told him the truth. He said, "Oh, we have another pastor from Sudan. He's teaching in our Bible school. Do you know uh, Reverend John Kanyekwa?" I said, yeah, I know him very well. We used to do evangelism together. I said, come on, I have a car. I'll take him, you to him. So I was taken there. I found Kanyikwa was there. Kanyikwa went to study in Britain, but when he was about to go back to Sudan, he was informed not to go because he's going to be arrested. So he stayed in Dar es Salaam. And um, I went to, da, to Reverend Kanyikwa, and explained the situation said, well, we thought you are dead. This is what we heard in the BBC. He said, I'm still around. And, and then um, he said, I, we have learned that your wife has gone to Canada. What are you going to do about it? He said, well, I don't know. And that's why I wanted to go to UN. He said, don't go to UN. In Tanzania, when you go there, they will send you to the remotest part of Tanzania. And you will have no chance to do the paperwork. I said, what can I do then? Then I was directed to a Catholic uh, place where they, you know, use it as a conference center, but at the same time they rent it out for individual. So when I went there, they told me, I can stay there for one month. I pay $100. And I didn't have that money because I was spending some of my money already. Then I called my wife. She sent me the money. And eventually, I was taken to the UN office, so, no, to, to Canadian embassy, because I knew now my wife is here. According to the UN law, you are allowed to be reunited with your family if you are separated because of the civil war. But then Canada, this, uh, I just wanted to retract it a little bit. Going to an embassy, a foreign embassy in Africa, is not an easy thing. So I woke up one day, I wanted to go, the manager told me, so where are you going? I said, I'm going to Canadian Embassy. He said, like that, the way how you dress? Because all this time, I have only one shirt, one pants. I wash the shirt at night, thank God for the heat in Africa. So, <coughs> so it get dry up <coughs> at night, or even the pants, I hey, wash it at night, I just put in my, you know, and then it is dried, I don't iron them, I just put them. I said, nobody will, they actually they said, nobody will allow you to go to the, to the embassy. I said, what do I have to do? They said, sir, go to this local place, get yourself a, a suit and a tie, otherwise you are not going to make it. So we went with him, you know, in a local market where they sell those second-hand clothes, so I got one for myself, we put it in a dry cleaning, local dry cleaning there. The next day it was ready. Then I started my journey to walk on food. They said, sir, you can't go like that. You go on food, you will not enter the embassy. I said, what do I do? I want to save my money because <laughs> I, I have little money. So he said, you have to go in a car. He said, hiring a taxi is very expensive. He said, I'm going to help you. So he walked me almost halfway, and then he got a taxi, said, take this man, and 
as soon as you get to the gate, tell that this is a very important man. He's going to see the ambassador. So open the gate for us. I was sitting in front. He said, no, don't sit in front. Sit at the back. Important people sit at the back. So I was placed at the back <laughs> of the car and driven. As soon as we arrived at the gate, this driver told the, the gatekeeper, said, this is a very important man. I'm taking him there, and he wants to see the ambassador. The guy opened the gate. When I arrived there, I tried to talk to the secretary, tried to make an appointment. They didn't want to listen to me. They said, this is a strange thing. So I sat there for four hours. I made up my mind. If the, the, the ambassador will not talk to me, I'm not going to leave the embassy. <laughs> so that was the, the whole thing. So you, you literally just sat there? I sat there four <laughs> hours. <laughs> so <clears throat> what happened? I didn't know the ambassador was just walking to and fro there. And then finally said, what is this gentleman doing here? I saw him sitting all this time. He said, well, he has a strange story that he's coming from Sudan and his wife is in Canada and he wants to go there and wanted to see you. He said, sir, come in. When I came in, he said, what's your name? When I mentioned my name, she took a piece of paper and said, you are supposed to be dead. I said, how do you know that? <laughs> he said, you know, we in diplomatic corps, we meet together to discuss all the affairs that is happening in the region. And your name came up. Here, he saw me, my name. I said, I am here. And she was just shaking her head. Said, thank God you are alive. And sometimes in the embassy, they don't say even the word, thank God. But that lady was able to say, say, thank God. And she said, the biggest problem is that they don't do the process to come to Canada from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. They do it in Nairobi. I said, Madam, I don't have a passport. I don't have even enough money. How can I go there? He said, well, that is the only place. So he wrote a letter to the ambassador of Kenya. I took that letter there. The ambassador of Kenya could not let me go to Tanzania. I mean, to Kenya. Again, I made up my mind. Said, if they don't respond to me well, I'm going to stay in the embassy because I'm desperate. And I, eventually, a lady came. What? Thank God for ladies. Uh, they have really hard. And as she listened to this story, she said, "Well, sir, go wherever you are staying. In five days, come back. You know, somebody who is desperate, waiting to see the family, waiting for an answer." Five days is like years. A day is like years. And it was so hard and difficult for me, but I have no choice. I have to do that. After five days, I came back. The lady said, sorry, I tried to persuade the ambassador, but he could not, you know, let you go to Kenya. I said, now, what am I going to do? My tears was running down. And she said, look, you look so familiar. Did you ever stay in Kenya? I said, well, I was in Kenya for four years studying. I did my studies there, and I went back again to Desta University. I spent another year there. He said, well, do you know Bishop Ezekiel Bridge? I said, well, he was my colleague. We went to the seminary together. He said, then I saw you. You went and preached in our church. Now I have something to do for you. 
I said, what is that? He said, well, go, get yourself a bus ticket. I'm not sending you with the plane. Get a bus ticket in the border of Kenya and Tanzania. We have people that we know. I'm going to connect you. As soon as you go there, they will take care of you. You will not be arrested. So I ran very fast. I have nothing, actually, so much. I bought the air ticket, I mean, the bus ticket. I got into the bus. We traveled the whole day. In the evening, we arrived. As soon as I reached the border, there was somebody standing with a poster, James Sokot. And that is what they have uh, arranged. So as soon as I saw that, I went to that man and said, Brother, come here. We have to go and pray. Serious prayer. So I went in. We began to pray. While the rest of the people are being checked, I'm not being checked. And this is where sometimes I make a joke, you know, <clears throat> where God says even a dog will not bark at them. I do believe that God is not going to bark at me. The police will not stop me. We prayed. And the man said, finally, you know what, brother, God be with you. We are praying for a miracle. Do you believe a miracle? I said, yes, I do believe in a miracle. He said, okay, now go into the bus. He brought me to the bus. And then the bus began to go, to proceed. As soon as we drove about three miles, the heavy rain began to fall. All the police posts on the way, they ran away from there to take shelter. Uh, <clears throat> there was nobody on the road altogether. So I went all the way to Nairobi. And Nairobi is known so much to me. It is like palms on my hand. I know the street very well because I stayed there. I said, now from here, I'm going to UN. I went to UN. I found thousands and thousands of refugees wanting to go there to get that same similar paper. I said, God, you brought me this far. What? And now I cannot go inside here. It's so bad. I wanted that paper desperately. Because in Kenya, if you are arrested without a document, boy, you'll be in big, big time trouble. They take you to jail. They beat you, literally. They don't just put you in jail. They beat you up. And they want money from you. And I'm not prepared and I'm not having enough money even to, to do. And I'm not going to give money to them anyway. So as I stood there praying, again, a miracle happened. As that rain was pouring, another miracle happened. I helped a lady who was working for us uh, in the relief department. She got sick. Her husband was in Britain. I decided to send her to a mission hospital in Kenya. And she never went back. That was eight years. And as I was standing there, I saw a vehicle pass, stop, and then back. And this lady came out. And see literally jump out from there. As she moves near me, he said, is that you? She was afraid because she have already learned that I'm dead. So to see somebody similar like myself, it was like a ghost appearing. I said, yes, it is me. Instead of talking to me, she ran back to the car and said, well, the guy that we have I've told you that he's dead, he's alive standing there. I didn't know that was the boss of the UN. He said, bring him over here. Could you see how God 
can work miracle. And some of you probably don't believe so much in a miracle in the Western world because everything is there. If you don't have money, you use your credit card and food is there. In the, but I literally lived a miracle life in those, those days. So I got in. They said, tell us what happened. Then I told them everything. And then they gave me the protection letter. My pictures was taken right inside there. Protection letter was given. So this lady was crying, weeping. She said, now your wife is not there. What are you going to do? I said, well, God will have a way. <clears throat> and she rich gave me 300 Kenya shillings. Said, you go wherever you're staying in hotel. Use it. The boss pushed his hand, pulled out 1,000 uh, Kenyan shillings. She pushed it back. And then push a hand here, and then again push 1,000 said, well, I think God is saying to me to give all this money to you. So he gave me 2,000 plus 3,000. I was rich at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew now I can spend some time in hotel. So, <clears throat> because I have nobody there. But God works in a very miraculous way. And now when you talk about the provision of God, and God does provide. It is not accidental. It is not just something that happened. But that was to me, is a provision and protection of God. And as he says, even if you walk through the waters, even if you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. God is always with his own people. He protected me. And um, here in Winnipeg, they told my wife, your husband is not going to come. It's going to spend five years there. The process is very slow, which is true, true. But when God is on your side, there is nothing impossible with God. So when we took all these papers there, and they told me to wait, it didn't take long. I was called in the embassy for medical checkup. I went to somebody that they have designated, not knowing that this guy he has just finished his studies in Canada and gone back. He's an Kenyan who back there. And I told him my story. He said, brother, I understood it very well. I read the political situation there every day. So I'm going to do this thing for you in one day, and I'm going to send. I wish I have the power. I could give it in your hand to take it, but it's not allowed. But the next day, I'm going to give it to, to, to the office. So I waited for three days. I went back there, and it seemed there was nothing. And uh, I waited again. It seemed nothing. Now this bishop that I talked about, Ezekiel Bridge, he heard about my situation, and they didn't want to, me to live in Kenya because if the government of Sudan knows that I'm there, they will come after me, or they will kill those two people who let me out of the country. So he took a telephone, called the president, because he was the advisor to the president in religious affairs. And then they called the office, Canadian office. And then they were looking for me, but I have no phone, I have to be there if they have to you know, contact me. So when I arrived finally, they said, where have you been? We are looking for you. I said, well, here I am. He said, well, we got your medical result. It's all okay. Today, you have to leave Canada. I meant for Canada. I said, what? He said, today, you're going to leave. 
here's the letter. Go to OM and get exit visa uh, from Red Cross and from uh, Kenyan government. At four, we need you in the office here and you have to be heading to Canada. Well, they said five years. Within three years, I mean three months, everything was done. I came and arrived in Winnipeg. The immigration official didn't know about it. It was Grace who took me later to immigration office. Faithful is our God. And he is a God who promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, even if we go through a very difficult, difficult situation. So gloriously, we are reunited with our family here. So that's... So then you were then helping at Calvary Temple, the pastor for the Sudanese community? Yes. And uh, in that process, over time, you have been going now back to Sudan. Well, when I came here, the first thing I have to do was to be with my kids. Two of them, Daniel and Miriam, they could not understand why I was away from them. They were so angry. They were so bitter. It is only Jacob and Rachel knew the situation of the war there. So I decided that I'm going to stay with them all this one year. I take them to school. I come back and cook and go and bring them from school. I take them to the park and try to explain to them why daddy was not with them all this time. And then eventually, of course, I went to uh, Providence Seminary and came back to Calvary Temple. I was helping there, you, you were there. But my heart's desire was not really to be in Winnipeg. I wanted to go back in Ethiopia where there is a Bible school and uh, I wanted to get more of my friends so that I can teach them. Well, guess what? They told me that, you know what? You don't have Canadian citizen, so you can't go. If something happened to you there, then nobody is going to help you. I said, well, God is still in control. Then another opportunity that came to me was to go to Tanzania. There was um, <clears throat> a project for AIDS to help people who were suffering with AIDS. And I'm supposed to supervise that project. But then, again, I did not have Canadian citizen. So the government of Canada, whose collaboration with the church, they said they cannot take me there. Non-Canadian can supervise their funds. It was a large money. 1.6 million is a lot of money. So they wanted to have a Canadian to do that. But I think God has still planned and a purpose for me. And I stayed in Calvary Temple. I was helping, working in Palisa. I never even knew that, you know, um, I'm going to be a pastor there, but I was working. My heart was still in Sudan. But when I, I joined Calvary Temple with the invitation of Pastor Bruce Martin, and uh, I still have that desire to go back. So I was going back all the time and sneak actually into um, Sudan because... So you'd fly into what country? I flew to Uganda. And then and you then, would sneak into the Sudan. Then I sneaked to, you know, to Sudan. And um, I didn't tell Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows now. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So my heart was with the people. And when I arrived there, what I saw has broken my heart. We saw little children parked in a, a small church, have literally no roof, and rain was pouring there. The floor is wet, and I found the kids having jiggers in their, in their legs. These are children who their parents were either killed or some of them died of AIDS. And the rebels actually literally bring them, dump them just in the, in the church compound. And Pastor John Okumu, who pastored the, the place, he has no resources, he has no nothing. And under that tree, tamarind tree, I remember very well these people are saying, welcome, Pastor James, we are happy to see you, but don't forget us when you go back. Remember us wherever you are going. Well, that song kept on ringing in my mind like crazy. And I came, I said, I want to do something. But what do I do? I try to talk to many people. Well, the story of a good Samaritan, you remember where this man asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? Here, they are not asking me exactly the same question. They were asking me, Pastor James, do we have our denomination representative in southern Sudan? I said, what are you talking about? Your denomination? All Westerners have run away from there. How do you expect to have your people over there? And to me, it's not about denomination. It is it's about life of people. And that is the most important thing. But I just wanted to let you, I got a lot of frustration. You know, people talking about denomination and talking about a white men being on the, you know, on the ground there to supervise whatever they are giving. I said, this is not really a right thing. So it was controlled. It was controlled. And then people weren't helping people because they weren't of the same denomination, is what you're They're saying. They're not of the same denomination, and probably there's not a white person there to oversee the whole thing. They wanted to do some, something to the people, but they don't want to do something with the people. That's a difference. And this is still the biggest struggle I find. The, you are so generous, gracious, but the problem is sometimes you wanted to do things for the people, but not with the people. That, that, is, uh, that is the challenging things. But I thank God, like some of the churches, like Soul Sanctuary and, you know, Pastor H.H. Barbara, too, has helped me a lot. So we decided, <clears throat> we, my first move was to find um, some resources to feed these people there. And it was so difficult. We have to make a tough choice with my family. You know, you have to start these things by yourself. We cut our food supply. That normally breakfast, lunch, and supper. So we, we just decided to skip um, our lunches. We will have breakfast and then we'll eat supper so that we can send this little money for these people there. And it was tough uh, on the kids too, but we felt that is the only thing that we could 
help these kids with. And then eventually, I went back again, and I found these kids who were staying there, they are drinking dirty water, wombs, and uh, two of them died, and that broke my heart, and I came back to Canada weeping. And uh, as I shared the story, one native man who works as a missionary in South America, he said, that is the same thing that I'm experiencing there. So he gave 10000 I don't know where he got the money from. He gave 10000 We went with Alfred Flett, then we sank a, a borehole for, for these people. And eventually the situation of the... So you built a well for the... Yes, we did. So here they are. They're jammed in a church. There's no roof. They have lice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're starving. They're getting sick and dying from bad water. You guys got the money. You gave up personally from your family. Yes. And this other gentleman gave you money. You put a new well in. Yes. Because we want them at least to drink clean water. But the greatest problem is also now that roof actually was collapsing. So then I got into a campaign to get the building. So we got the first building for girls. We, you know, because they are much more vulnerable. So, so we got the first building. I think they have some PowerPoint that you guys can start flipping up on the screen right now. Y yes. Then Pastor H.H. Barbara generously then gave us some money to build a boys' dormitory. Actually, what you see there is another. Um, those are the staff's houses that take care of the, of the kids now. Because we have finished the dormitory. We have finished the, the staff housing. Uh, for, for this, uh, this place. But all along, also my biggest uh, plan and is that we should get a tractor for them. We have a beautiful green land, and you can grow almost anything, anything. There are two seasons there for rain. So I thought begging for money to feed these people is not appropriate. And therefore, the best thing is that we have to do things with them. We have to get a tractor. Once you have a tractor, you have the food for the people. In fact, as we speak, southern Sudan is starving. The UN reports that we got recently that a half a million of people of southern Sudan are going to starve if the international community doesn't help. And the international community is tired and sick. A half a million of these people are now encamped in a UN compound. And they are literally waiting for food. But I have worked with Norwegian Church Aid. I think handouts is not the best solution for the people in Africa or in the third world. I think we have to give. You see that beautiful... In, um, building there, and then the children are happy. And um, the thing is, we need to help them, to empower them to do something. And these kids too who are growing there, they will see, and then eventually will be able to help themselves. So the biggest needs now I have is to get a brand new tractor there, so that we can have enough food for them to eat, enough food for them even to sell out so that they can have school fees 
they can have clothing, and um, they can have medical supply. Because still one of the challenges is that there's no medicine. This, this, absolutely the system is broken down. You have, they have no doctors, they have no facility where you can go to all the people that you can go to get medicine. All these children here, we buy medicine, like things like aspirin, penicillin, you know, you know, and other things. We buy it all from Uganda and send it over there. So you have a passion for your people. So the, the, can, the political climate is still very dangerous in southern Sudan. The political situation is very dangerous. And the, the, this specific orphanage, though, is low. It's almost at the very southern yeah. tip. Yeah. The good thing about this uh, orphanage is in the border of Uganda and um, uh, southern Sudan. The war is being fought way in the north there. The government that is sitting right now, people have a great hope and aspiration when we got independent. And uh, we thought things will really turn out very well. We have the oil. In fact, the vice president came one time to Calvary Temple. I told him, I don't understand why we in the southern Sudan should suffer. Everybody should suffer. In three months, they get over 45 million from the sale of oil. I told him, if I'm made a president for even one month, every single Sudanese, southern Sudanese should be a millionaire. This is what I'm at. We are only 18 million. Mm -hmm. You're taking 18 million, everybody should have a million. Nobody should be dying. And he was just laughing. But they are obsessed with buying guns. They are obsessed of keeping their position in the government. And the worst things that uh, is taking place there is tribalism. Two tribes, the Dinka and the Nuer, they think because they are the largest, they begin to fight. And that is the things that is causing a big problems, very big problems. And we need to pray. Uh, the UN, the Americans, and the Canadian too are putting uh, an energy to get these two people to go and talk. And I think uh, next week they are meeting in Addis Ababa. We need to talk. I mean, we need to pray so that God will touch their hearts. Already in Juba town, in 2013, 1,000, no, 10,000 Nuer tribe were murdered in the cold blood. And in retaliation, they jumped into the bush. They also murdered a lot of Dinkas going in thousands. And this... And we don't hear about this on the news. Well, it's, yeah, you, you don't hear it. I mean, uh, some of the NGOs have been even kicked out. So the UN personnel that was working there uh, being appointed, even the government kicked him out. So who can get the news? The whole thing is like sealed up completely. But we get this news because we are connected there. Our people there tell us what is happening there. But of course, uh, there are few uh, people who are daring. They are living there with the help of the technology. <laughs> These days they can send email. They can, you know, uh, get the information to us. One more thing because we have to wrap up. Yeah. Um, you have a passion, obviously, for a pastor. So here's a guy who's going back to the nation who tried to kill you. 
because you feel God has put it upon your heart to do all this. And you have a passion for the pastors there that are doing the work that you used to do. Yeah. And what's, what's that passion? Well, the first thing is that we, we, I, I have a desire to equip them because one of, uh, one of the things that um, the church is facing is that um, they are not grounded in their faith. Many people come to Jesus Christ, but they don't have, most of them, the, the, the Christian don't have the Bible. They don't have all this literature that we have, the, Bible, the, the books that Jerry was talking about. They don't have anything. So we intend to do discipleship because I've been running these courses all these years whenever I go there. And I do some also courses on f families. We do courses on um, uh, missions. We want them to be, you know, going out. They get in, disciple them, release them to the ministry. And that is very important things in my heart. And um, many of the pastors have not gone to Bible school. They're not trained. And that brings a little bit of a challenges. Um, we went, I, I don't know whether I told you, and this one pastor came to me, he said, well, you know, brother, uh, confirm it to me. I have visions and I have this dream. God is speaking to me to put away my wife. And immediately my reaction is that that vision is from hell itself. When the Bible tells me that when you are joined together, let no one put asunder. But as I investigate, the whole issue was not God is speaking to him. They were married for 10 years. They didn't have kids. And as a result, the man wanted to have another wife so that he can probably get a child. That was the whole thing. You know, they, he doesn't want to follow now the Bible anymore. But I challenged them. Thank God I have connection. I was able to give some money for their own medical checkup. And behold, it was the man who had the problems, not the woman. So, uh, but it was treatable. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> so, <laughs> too much information, but hey, it's all right. <laughs> so now they have four kids. <laughs> now, the first one is called James. The second one is called Grace, the name after us. And uh, the other one is called Jacob, according to, you know, the name after our son. And the other one is Daniel. Mm -hmm. So they have kids. But these are some of the things. And if the leaders are doing these things, what about the, the normal people? But the other thing is, so they are working by faith. There is no support. And when everybody is getting relief aids from the government or from the UN, the congregation cannot support the pastor. We have literally seen some of the pastors. The collars being torn. Some even the, you know, pants is like, completely stone. I think I saw you some of those pictures. And uh, I thought maybe it will be nice for us to clothe some of this. We are going, we are going to have 200 pastors and it will cost $15. So j if I can just say this because we're pressed for time. James will be going back in July, July 15th, you're going back. Yes. And you're having a pastor's conference. Yes. And these guys are coming out. And they're, they're coming out from the bush. They're coming yeah. out from all over the place. Yeah. And his goal is 
to sponsor 200 pastors at $15 a pastor to clothe them. So, that's why you're here. Yeah. You're throwing out a challenge to us. I'm throwing a challenge. You can buy... Three lattes. <laughs> means that if they gave up three lattes... You guys gave yeah. up meals. Maybe you can give up lattes. Tim Hortons? Tim Hortons, I just yeah. give it up altogether and then throw all the money <coughs> in there. Um, but we, we, if you take the time, and this mm. is how we're going to do it here at Seoul. There's two ways. Again, open bidding for the tractors. So all the money that we get off the paintings goes strictly to the tractor fund. Or if you want to sponsor a pastor, you take an envelope and just put on the envelope, just put, uh, well, if you want to do tractor fund, put tractor on the envelope. Um, if you want to sponsor the pastors, just put uh, pastors. That's all you have to do. Mm. And, uh, and since I'm going, I don't want to get another expenses because now Calvary Temple is paying for my trip there. There we go. So I wanted a tractor to be delivered to, yeah. to purchase it and give it to them and leave it there. So there's a number of churches that are helping out. Yeah. So the one thing that we do here at Seoul is we allow God to speak to you. And if God has spoken to you and through James's story and you want to make a contribution, um, I'm just throwing it out there. We have to wrap up. I want to say thank you. Thank you too. Is there anything that you want to share? One last thing with everybody, one word of encouragement? I wanted to say that um, one of the things that we have learned with my wife uh, that the measure of a person is not measured by your comfort and your security, but rather by being out there for those who are beating up on Jericho Road, those children that are crying for help. Um, when we help them, that makes a big difference. Thank you so much. Thank you. Josh, stand with me. James, will you pray for us, please? Yes. Father God, I want to thank you so much for this group of people. I thank you for their love to reach the city for, for people and bring them to Jesus Christ. And not only the people in the Winnipeg here, but even reaching people across the globe. And Father, I pray that the God you are anointing and your spirit will be upon them. And may you supply their needs according to your riches in glory. And Lord, extend and expand their territory in this place, O oh God. That they will do a mighty and great things for you. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Thank you, Lord. May the Lord be with you. May the Lord's countenance be upon you and give you peace. Mm. And may you be an influence not only to your world, but the world. Mm. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We'll see you next week.